Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, what impact has the COVID-19 pandemic had on army recruitment? Young people will be looking out there at, at perhaps jobs that are open to them, working in the NHS, working in the military, you know, of, of working and doing something for the greater good. Um, and with a bit of job security is something that maybe perhaps would attract youngsters to come and join the army. We talked to Colonel Nick McKenzie, who runs army recruiting. We have a report from RAF Lossiemouth, the new home for the P-8A submarine hunter. It's pretty emotional, I've got to be honest. This is something that uh, was, the the genesis of it was five years ago, uh, when the last Defence Review uh, announced that we were going to buy a maritime patrol aircraft. And since then, many thousands of people have put in many thousands of hours of work. And the campaign to honour the armed forces personnel from the Caribbean with a new monument at the National Memorial Arboretum. What drives me is is the fact that um, the men and women who came before me and were accepted into the armed forces as such did a great deal to pave the way for myself and others. But first, what impact is COVID-19 having on recruitment to the British Army? Figures out in July had shown that the Army had hit 96% of its end-of-year target for 2019 to 2020. So what difference has the lockdown at the end of March and the subsequent pause in face-to-face recruitment had on numbers since? Well, earlier I spoke to Colonel Nick McKenzie, who runs Army Recruiting, and asked him first about the situation in the run-up to the lockdown. It was actually really positive. For the first time in in the history of the contract with Capita, so the eight years since it's been that's been running, we almost at our targets. I mean, you know, actually the the last few weeks of COVID or the the start up of COVID impacted um, on our targets just a little bit. So we we achieved close to a hundred percent across all streams. So that's regular soldiers, reserves, uh, and officers. So we we did really well and. Um, it was going really well till about the 20th of, uh, 20th of March <laughs> when we went into lockdown. And what happened since then? As with everybody, everything paused. Across uh, our organisation, we paused face-to-face recruiting. We continued it virtually. So the sort of what we call nurture, the candidate nurture, the candidate goes through a process of applying online. It, they go through some online medical questionnaires. So that sort of stuff was happening. Conversations with recruiting offices were all being done online. But we had to pause where we come to our assessment of candidates. So uh, it was a couple of days assessment. You go to different assessment centres around the country. We had to stop that activity uh, for obvious reasons, COVID restrictions, lockdown, etc., etc. So um, we were nurturing, doing all that stuff. Um, the people that we had um, at that time as well, our basic training establishments had uh, sent people home and they were doing their virtual online virtual learning, uh, which went really well. Um, but we weren't able to start people training and process candidates through the assessment process to start training. And, and that started again in June. So if you were to compare this period of time then from about 20th March to June to previous year, how big an impact do you think COVID has had on your recruitment process? Actually, very little. Things paused, but there were candidates still building up in what we call a hopper. So we were building the candidates up to ready to process them through the assessment centres. Um, applications were looking really strong. 
perhaps as a result of COVID. So on in broad comparable terms, about 18% up on, on, a, on similar time last year. So candidates were applying to join the army. We were processing them through to a certain point. We'd, we'd already factored into our plan about loading people into the basic training regiments. Um, so we actually, by the time we set, set them back up and running again, we, we were cl- still close to sort of achieving our, our targets for our monthly targets. Um, and then our challenge, of course, as with all things, was to try and get people through our assessment process, which we've managed to do. And, 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 it, and it worked really well. Quite a challenge, but, but we, we've got there. So we're still on track to meet our current year targets in terms of where we are in what we call load to train. Load to train is like a, effectively a candidate that's been through assessment centres and they've got a job offer. We are broadly comparable to where we were last year, about just over about 50% loaded on our regular soldier target. So that's really good. In terms of officers, we're... we're we're re- doing really well, and we're way above our our, our targets and that's uh, already been set. And have you found that you've had to make adjustments to the way you do the training, though, to actually cope with the fact that you you do have to process people more quickly? So the tra- training hasn't hasn't changed. The the um, candidates once they start basic training will go either to different parts of the to country. If you want to join the infantry, you go up to Catterick, um, and you do your twenty six week course in Catterick. And if you want to join other parts of the army, you either go to Purbright or Winchester, and those courses remain uh, a sort of a sort of fourteen week courses. There's been a, cu- a couple of shifts in terms of time just to clear the backlog slightly by a couple of weeks, but nothing significant. So the your, the training is broadly comparable to what it was. In order to sort of clear the backlog of candidates who are waiting to go through assessment, we just we, we slightly refined our assessment process. So we just we we it was used about two and a half days. It's now just over twenty four hours. The latest challenge, of course, is uh, the measures that have been imposed uh, across Scotland, across Wales, uh, and the latest government advice in, in, in England is also um, will also provide slight challenges, uh, and we're we're sort of looking at how we can work through those challenges to make sure that all candidates can try and get to some form of assessment if they so wish to, because some will not wish, wish to travel. You mentioned earlier uh, about the, the success in getting very close to your uh, recruitment targets before the lockdown. And um, the relationship with Capita is very well documented. It has been very difficult in the past and coming for a lot of criticism. How has it improved? What's been done exactly? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It was a really um, fractious relationship. I think that was just probably partly publicised in the press as well, that, that you know, it, things weren't going well and people capitalised on the fact that we weren't necessarily hitting targets. I think what we've really done is um, we've come at this from a joint approach and I think uh, everyone's realised that the only way we're going to do this is doing it together. And over the last couple of years, we've really focused on working as a team not the them and us, perhaps maybe that existed previously, I don't know. But, but certainly now it's about how can we collectively achieve what we need to achieve because it's for the, in, for the benefit of both, both for the capita and for the army. Do, do you think sort of perhaps then one of the consequences of the pandemic is actually that um, it's easier to recruit and it's easier to retain the new people you get? I, I think you could all, all, all roads lead to that um, junction at the moment. I think everything you read in the news is saying the economy is perhaps going into some some form of um, 
recession unemployment is going to rise. We haven't yet seen the consequence of that. And I, I sense that that's because we are still coming out the back of the, the, the government furlough scheme. Um, perhaps next year, our lives may be easier. Uh, and, and perhaps people might see joining the army as something they might wish to do. Uh, my view, perhaps, is, is that there's been a, you know, young people will be looking out there at, at perhaps jobs that are open to them, working in the NHS, working in the military, you know, of, of working and doing something for the greater goods, um, and with a bit of job security is something that m maybe perhaps will attract youngsters to come and join the army. Colonel Nick McKenzie there. Well, with me now is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Christopher, what are the priorities for the armed forces in terms of recruitment at the moment? I think the main priority is to actually get it right in terms of how you do it. Um, getting the numbers from the moment anyway, it's not difficult. Uh, a lot of people out of work, uh, a lot of people looking around more seriously at where they might work. And so there you had the colonel saying, well, you see somebody wants to join the army, see somebody wants to join NHS, put the two together, join the army and do an NHS sort of work. Christopher, stay with us. Well, after the work military personnel carried out in the first stages of the pandemic, building Nightingale hospitals, delivering PPE and running testing stations, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, told the House of Commons this week that they were ready to be called upon again to help in local areas. For very high areas, we will give further financial support for local test and trace and local enforcement. And assistance from the armed forces, not for, not for enforcement, but rather to support local services, if desired, in the local area. Some councils have already called on military personnel. Earlier this week, MacTeal spoke to Lieutenant General Tyrone Urch, standing joint commander for the UK. I'm always keen to say that we will do anything that is authorised and anything that other government departments need us to help with. Um, and since the end of February, you know, defence has been, that's not just the Army, that's the Army, the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force, you know, have been exceptionally busy on a thing called Operation Rescript, uh, which is the COVID-19 uh, contribution to operations that's for the government. We started off with sort of 20,000 uh, men and women sort of on the, uh, on the list of doing stuff. We don't have that many now. Um, but, you know, the, the armed forces have done some amazing stuff um, and we stand by ready to help the government and any other government department uh, when they ask. And in terms of what that future work may be, obviously a vaccine is what we're all waiting for. It may be in the distribution of that in the months uh, ahead. Also, the announcement that we're expecting in the next few hours about the three-tiered system um, of, of restrictions and lockdowns, there may be a role to play, we understand, for the military in those. Is there anything you can tell us about that at the moment? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any kind of secrets in there, Matt. I think um, we're definitely not going to be doing all the things that we were doing in March, April and May. Um, I've certainly not seen any plans for kind of more hospitals or, or anything like that. And of course, you know, the government is now absolutely uh, all over this um, and, you know, it doesn't need our help in the way that it, that it did sort of back in the day. Um, I think there's probably three areas where we might get asked to kind of lean in and provide more help. There's, there's definitely more to do on testing, I am sure. And if we can possibly help with a bit more of that, then um, we stand by. Um, as you say, vaccines is probably the kind of new shiny thing on the block. Um, and the vaccine task force uh, for, for the government uh, has some of our people in there and we're all working together to see what more can be done on vaccines. Um, 
And then, for instance, in Birmingham, we've got we've got a whole bunch of uh, fine young men and women who are out kind of dropping off testing units uh, and picking them up at the end of the day. So helping with logistics. Uh, and I, I think those are the three areas. So kind of labs, vaccines and outreach support, I think, are the three big areas. And I hope we still continue with our liaison and our planning uh, staff uh, wherever they're needed. So I, I think those are the big issues at the moment. Lieutenant General Tyrone Arch there. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. North Korea's nighttime military parade this week displayed previously unseen long-range ballistic missiles. The government typically uses its parades to show off new weaponry. It comes just weeks ahead of the US presidential election. North Korea has not featured ballistic missiles in its parade since President Trump and Kim Jong-un held their first summit in 2018. Well, John Everett is the former UK ambassador to North Korea. I asked him about the timing of the parade. Well, the timing was determined by the 75th anniversary of the foundation of the Korean Workers' Party. So to that extent, it was mechanical. This wasn't a, the timing itself wasn't a political signal. But the contents of the display quite clearly were. And I, I think analysts all, all over the world are still uh, looking very carefully at the footage of the display and particularly at that enormous missile that they so proudly rolled out. And they are relying on edited state media footage to assess these weapons. How much can we really tell from that? Uh, not as much as we'd like. They have been very careful to control all the image messaging this time round. Uh, unusually, in fact, I think for the first time, they held the display not in broad daylight uh, in front of massive crowds, but uh, just after midnight. So it was a night display, which, of course, makes the, uh, it much more difficult for... Uh, satellites to photograph exactly what is going on. They forbade any foreigners in Pyongyang from either attending the parade or indeed uh, from visiting the, the, the practice grounds before. They've gone to some effort to make sure that the world sees only what it is that they want the world to see, which of course raises all kinds of questions. Remember that there have been occasions in the past where the North Koreans have been caught out cheating um, they announced uh, new, new tank goggles until somebody pointed out that these were uh, plastic South Korean imitation goggles usually sold to small children to play with. Uh, they, there was a, a, an extraordinary occasion uh, several years ago in a parade where the world stood in awe uh, watching yet another missile being rolled out until somebody noticed that the fins of the missile were flapping slightly in the wind. Papier-mâché, perhaps? Plastic, perhaps? Who knows? So, this time round, they're truly trying to say hide something, but we don't know what it is. What do you think we did learn about the equipment that was used by the soldiers? Firstly, uh, notice the sudden emergence of body armour, uh, which has not been widely issued in the North Korean Armed Forces until now. Uh, a brand new battle tank, um, which looks suspiciously, in some regards, like the Russian Armata tank, uh, one wonders whether the technical transfer was voluntary or not and what the Kremlin makes of all this. New uh, side weapons, uh, new assault rifles. I mean, the, the, it was the big missile that's caught all the attention. But probably in the longer term, 
this determined effort to upgrade their conventional forces, uh, even with less eye-catching kit, is going to be more important. Yes, you say it was the big missile that captured the attention. How much concern should the sight of that new ballistic missile raise? I think, well, the, I think there are two aspects here, uh, how much military concern and how much political concern. Uh, how much military concern, uh, probably not a whole lot right now, because, of course, they haven't tested it. We don't know whether this thing will actually fly. And uh, the sheer size of the missile represents quite a technological leap from anything the North Koreans have tried before. In particular, it looks as if it is designed to host multiple warheads. Uh, now, the, the technology for that is very difficult to master. And I, I think there have to be a lot of questions over whether even if the North Koreans can get this thing in the air, and if they can achieve a re-entry, whether their multiple targeting systems will be up to scratch. Politically, the fact it was displayed at all will, of course, be a strong signal to the United States. Uh, Kim Jong-un uh, promised Donald Trump not to test any more missiles, says Donald Trump. Uh, of course, he hasn't tested this one, but he has kind of waved it under the nose of the world, just to remind us all what North Korea is capable of. Yeah, and is that a reminder that, that North Korea, as it's been saying for the, the last year, is going to build up its nuclear capabilities? Yes, uh, specifically... Kim Jong-un, in his New Year's speech, talked about a new strategic weapon. It looks like this is it. John Everard, the former UK ambassador to North Korea there. Uh, Christopher, how big a threat are North Korea's armed forces? They're a threat because they can do some um, terrible damage. And therefore, they, they may trigger a response which otherwise uh, an American president certainly wouldn't want to have to perform. So in that case... Uh, we're back to this, uh, this idea with when you see something military. You say, right, that's in theoretical, that's the capability. What we have to find out is whether uh, we, we, we know also what the intention is. In other words, do they intend to use it? And that's where we are at the moment. There's a possibility, but it's not the intent to use it. And what message do you think Washington will take from this just weeks before the election? Well, I mean, things in Washington can move on the whim of the president who can get up in the morning and say, tweet an invitation to the president of, uh, uh, president of uh, North Korea and say we mm -hmm. should meet or should we, we, we should, how about Tuesday week? And things go on very quickly from there. But it doesn't mean to say you're going to come up with a conclusion of the fact that they have got the potential for a, a missile uh, launch on America or anywhere else in the region uh, and we at the moment are not quite sure what we're supposed to do about it. A commemorative monument honouring Caribbean Armed Forces personnel has come a step closer with the approval of a provisional design planned for the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire. Well, now the charity behind the campaign wants to raise around £500,000 to get the monument built and maintained. Well, so far it's raised around a tenth of the total. Winston White is from the National Caribbean Monument Charity and served with the RAF for 29 years. He told me how the campaign started. The campaign started by four friends who went to the Arboretum for a visit. They did the walk around and after finishing the walk around, sat down and had a, had a coffee and they discussed the fact that there was nothing there for Caribbean people. So they, they asked around and they discovered that there was a shot at dawn memorial, which had no positive connotation for the people of the Caribbean. They then left there and got in touch with 
ex-members of the of the armed forces, in which they set up a charity called the National Caribbean Monument Charity. Myself, Don Campbell, Pauline Mills started the charity to its current state. And Winston, the, the monument will honour people serving from the First World War onwards. Can you just explain the contribution that Caribbean service personnel have made? The memorial, uh, yes, will encompass uh, and honour all the people who have served from the First World War and the Second World War, people who are who've served post the, the, the two world wars and people serving now and those who will come in the future, will serve in the future. And thousands of Caribbean service personnel lost their lives fighting for Britain. What has been the impact of sharing their stories as you talk to people about your campaign? A lot of people are quite staggered that so many people lost their lives over that period. Uh, and when you say to them, because the, the numbers were some 15,000, of which we lost 5,000, um, and those the people that actually came and fought in those war were some of our brightest people from the Caribbean. Just, just how much of a contribution have Caribbean service personnel made to the armed forces? I would say uh, a lot, because when you think that the, the Caribbean is is of, made up of many many islands, and uh, when you're selecting the best people from your island to come and fight in in a war and then you lose some of those people. It's hard to say to the Caribbean itself, well, you've lost your, you know, your great, your, the greatest of what you have to protect what you might lose. It, it's, it's a very, it's hard to sort of comprehend it all in one uh, and over probably a short and you have two people walking from air in Scotland to the National Memorial Arboretum at the moment to raise funds. How's that going? That is going in, in well. I mean, um, the first day they did uh, 26 uh, miles. Second day they did 27 miles. And today they are still walking. So far, they're doing fine. They're doing fine. And what drives you, Winston? What drives me is, is the fact that... Um, the men and women who came before me and were accepted into the armed forces as such did a great deal to pave the way for myself and others. And it would be remiss of me not to say thank you and give my services as well. Winston White there. Now, the RAF has welcomed the arrival of the first of the P-8A Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft to its permanent home. The city of Elgin touched down at RAF Lossiemouth for the first time after months of operating out of Kinloss Barracks along the Murray Coast. David Sybil's McCann was there. Finally arriving at its permanent home. The city of Elgin touches down at a windswept RAF Lossiemouth the base that will eventually host all nine P-8 Poseidons in the fleet. Officer commanding of 120 Squadron, Wing Commander James Hansen, says it was a proud moment. It's pretty emotional, I've got to be honest. This is something that uh, was, the, the genesis of it was five years ago, uh, when the last Defence Review uh, announced that we were going to buy a maritime patrol aircraft. And since then, many thousands of people have put in many thousands of hours of work to get the aircraft ready, to get RAF Lossiemouth ready, to get the crews ready, to get all the support staff ready, to get the engineers ready, and 
Now we have the team here at RF Lossiemouth. So the team is building and the team is ready. This is a good day for RF Lossiemouth and a good day for the Air Force. Three P-8 Poseidons have already arrived in the UK earlier in the year. Now they're set to join the Typhoon squadrons at RAF Lossiemouth. They've been based along the coast at Kinloss Barracks, home to the Poseidon's predecessor, the Nimrod, in its days as an RAF base. But everyone is happy to see the aircraft finally arrive at Lossiemouth. Station Commander Group Captain Chris Layden says it's an exciting time for the base. It's a brilliant day for RAF Lossiemouth, but also a brilliant day for the people of Murray, who support us so well as our local community, and Scotland at large. Uh, this is the next step in a long and really exciting journey, um, one which puts RAF Lossiemouth at the forefront of securing our seas as well as securing our skies, and uh, once again central to keeping the people of this country safe. So it's a great day for Lossiemouth, but it's also a great day for Murray. The P-8 Poseidon gives the RAF the maritime patrol capability it's been missing since the decommissioning of Nimrod. They'll be used to protect Britain's nuclear submarines and aircraft carriers and for search and rescue operations, as well as securing UK waters from unauthorised vessels. Wing Commander Hansen knows just what it's capable of. The Poseidon is a fifth-generation maritime patrol aircraft. It's based on a Boeing 737-800, a, a superb commercial airliner. Um, it has a state-of-the-art sensor suite, and it has fan a fantastic communication ability that means that I can provide um, battle-winning, decision-making information to commanders uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, and if I need to, then I can take the offensive to the enemy with the weapons that I carry on the aircraft. RAF Lossiemouth has undergone a significant refurbishment, including construction of a multi-million pound facility for the Poseidons and their crew. And a major upgrade of the airfield to accommodate the larger and heavier aircraft. Wing Commander Pete Beckett is programme director of the Lossiemouth Development Programme. I didn't expect it, but as I saw it coming down the runway, I got a little case of goosebumps. Yes, it's been six months since we've had anything really happen here while we're doing the work, but to see finally see the Poseidon come in, uh, not quite the combination of the work on the runway, but the main part of it's done, so we can now get the larger aircraft in here safely. Yeah, it was a very good feeling. The city of Elgin is being joined by the RAF's two other Poseidons, Pride of Murray and Terence Bullock. Six more will arrive from the USA to complete the maritime patrol fleet. A lot for this busy airbase to look forward to over the next few years. David Sybils McCann with that report. Well, we heard for the first time this week since taking the job from the new head of the security service, MI5, Ken McCallum, on China and Russia. If the question is, which country's intelligence services caused the most aggravation to the UK in October 2020, the answer is Russia. If, on the other hand, the question is, which state will be shaping our world across the next decade, presenting big opportunities and big challenges for the UK, the answer is China. You might think in terms of the Russian intelligence services providing bursts of bad weather, while China is changing the climate. And Christopher, very clear on his priorities there. Yes, he is. I mean, China changing the climate of technology, um, and that, that's the, um, the, the important debate that's going on in Whitehall now, and that is how you balance the needs 
of some of the technology which we either could get from China or we already share with China. Uh, and, and the greater task, and that's the security of the nation. Uh, it's, it's, it's an important decision that's been made. So far, some of the decisions have been made, but there are a lot more to come. And earlier, Christopher, we were talking about how the pandemic had impacted on army recruitment. How has it affected the work of MI5? Well, there's, there's one way we don't normally think. We tend to think of the MI5 being very technical now, which is true. But it's also a, a fact because the streets are much emptier of, of the major cities, especially London, much, uh, much emptier now, um, MI5 has greater difficulty in tracking people. A, the terrorists or would-be terrorists, uh, then they've stayed at home. They're not on the streets. The other thing is that the people who might be doing the surveillance, doing the plotting after them, are so obvious. And finally, Christopher, we've marked a lot of anniversaries associated with the Second World War recently, but this week, you feel, is one of the most significant. Today, in 1945, uh, was the end of the higher Nazi leadership that started World War II. Um, they either took their own lives or they were shot and some hanged in another way. Um, that was the end of the war. That was the end of the war, really. Christopher, thank you. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you.